Chapter Twenty Four of the Tavern Knight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. The Tavern Knight by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter Twenty Four: The Wooing of Cynthia. Cynthia's swoon was, after all, but brief. Upon recovering consciousness, her first act was to dismiss her woman. She had need to be alone, the need of the animal that is wounded to creep into its lair and hide itself. And so alone with her sorrow she sat through that long day. That her father's condition was grievous she knew to be untrue, so that concerning him there was not even that pity that she might have felt had she believed, as he would have her believe, that he was dying. As she pondered the monstrous disclosure he had made, her heart hardened against him, and even as she had asked him whether indeed she was his daughter, so now she vowed to herself that we sh that she would be his daughter no longer. She would leave Castle Marleigh, never again to set eyes upon her father, and she hoped that during the little time she must yet remain there, a day or two at most, she might be spared the ordeal of again meeting a parent for whom respect was dead, and who inspired her with just that feeling of horror she must have had for any man who confessed himself a murderer and a thief. She resolved to repair to London to a sister of her mother's, where for her dead mother's sake she would find haven extended readily. At evening time she came at last from her chamber. She had need of air, need of the balm that nature alone can offer in solitude to poor wounded human souls. It was a mild and sunny evening, worthy rather of August than of October, and aimlessly Mistress Cynthia wandered towards the cliff overlooking Sheringham Heights. There she sat herself in sad dejection upon the grass, and gazed wistfully seaward, her mind straying now from the sorry theme that had held dominion in it, to the memories of that very spot evoked. It was there, sitting as she sat now, her eyes upon the shimmering waste of sea, and the gulls circling overhead, that she had awakened to the knowledge of her love for Crispin. And so to him strayed now her thoughts, and to the fate her father had sent him to, and thus back again to her father and the evil he had wrought. It is matter for conjecture whether her loathing for Gregory would have been as intense as it was, had another than Crispin Galliard been his victim. Her life seemed at an end as she sat that October evening on the cliffs. No single interest linked her to existence. Nothing, it seemed, was left to her to hope for till the end should come, and no doubt it would be long in coming, for time moves slowly when we wait. Wistfully she sat and thought, and every thought begat a sigh. And then of a sudden, surely her ears had tricked her, enslaved by her imagination, a crisp metallic voice rang out close behind her. Why are we pensive, Mr. Cynthia? There was a catch in her breath as she turned her head. Her cheeks took fire and for a second were aflame. Then they went deadly white, and it seemed that time and life and the very world had paused in its relentless progress toward eternity. For there stood the object of her thoughts and sighs, sudden and unexpected, as though the earth had cast him up on to her surface. His thin lips were parted in a smile that softened wondrously the harshness of his face, and his eyes seemed then to her alight with kindness. A moment's pause there was, during which she sought her voice, and when she had found it, all that she could falter was, Sir, how came you here? They told me that you rode to London. Why, so I did. But on the road I chanced to halt and having halted I discovered reason why I should return. He had discovered a reason. 
She asked herself breathlessly what might that reason be, and finding herself no answer to the question, she put it next to him. He drew near to her before replying, May I sit with you a while, Cynthia? She moved aside to make room for him, as though the broad cliff had been a narrow ledge, and with the sigh of a weary man finding a resting place at last, he sank down beside her. There was a tenderness in his voice that set her pulses stirring wildly. Did she guess aright the reason that had caused him to break his journey and return? That he had done so, no matter what the reason, she thanked God from her innermost heart, as for a miracle that had saved him from the doom awaiting him in London town. Am I presumptuous, child, to think that aptly the, the meditation in which I found you wrapped was for one, unworthy though he be, who went hence but some few days since? The ambiguous question drove every thought from her mind, filling it to overflowing with the supreme good of his presence, and the frantic hope that she had read aright the reason of it. Have I conjectured rightly, he asked, since she kept silence? Mayhap you have, she whispered in return, and then, marveling at her boldness, blushed. He glanced sharply at her from narrowing eyes. It was not the answer he had looked to hear. As a father might have done, he took the slender hand that rested upon the grass beside him, and she, poor child, mistaking the promptings of that action, suffered it to lie in his strong grasp. With averted head she gazed upon the sea below, until a mist of tears rose up to blot it out. The breeze seemed full of melody and gladness. God was very good to her, and sent her, in her hour of need, this great consolation, a consolation indeed that must have served to efface whatever sorrow could have beset her. Why then, sweet lady, is my task that I feared to find all fraught with difficulty grown easy indeed? And hearing him pause, What task is that, Sir Crispin? she asked, intent on helping him. He did not reply at once. He found it difficult to devise an answer, to tell her brutally that he was come to bear her away, willing or unwilling, on behalf of another was not easy. Indeed, it was impossible, and he was glad that inclinations in her which he had little dreamt of put the necessity aside. My task, Mistress Cynthia, is to bear you hence, to ask you to resign this peaceful life, this quiet home in a little corner of the world, and to go forth to bear life's hardship with any one who, whatever be his shortcomings, has all the redeeming virtue of loving you beyond aught else in life. He gazed intently at her as she spoke, and her eyes fell before his glance. He noted the warm red blood sufficing her cheeks, her brow, her very neck, and he could have laughed aloud for joy at finding so simple that which he had feared would prove so hard. Some pity, too, crept unaccountably into his stern heart, fathered by the little faith which in his inmost soul he reposed in Jocelyn. And where she had resisted him, he would have grown harsh and violent. Her acquiescence struck the weapons from his hands, and he caught himself well-nigh warning her against accompanying him. It is much to ask, he said, but love is selfish, and love asks much. No, no, she protested softly. It is not much to ask, rather it is much to offer. All that he was aghast, yet he continued. Bethink you, Mr. Cynthia, I have ridden back to Sheringham to ask you to come with me into France, where my son awaits us. He forgot for the moment that she was in ignorance of his relationship to him he looked upon as her lover, whilst she gave this mention of his son of whose existence she had already heard from her father little thought at that moment. The hour was too full of other things that touched her more nearly. I ask you to abandon the ease and peace of Sheringham for a life as a soldier's bride, that may be rough and precarious for a while, though, truth to tell, I have some influence at the Luxembourg, 
and friends upon whose assistance I can safely count, to find your husband honorable employment, and set him on the road to more. And how, guided by so sweet a saint, can he but mount to fame and honor? She spoke no word, but the hand resting in his, entwined his fingers in an answering pressure. Dare I then ask so much, cried he, and as if the ambiguity which had marked his speech were not enough, he must needs, as he put this question, bend in his eagerness toward her, until her brown tresses touched his swarth cheek. Was it then strange that the eagerness wherewith he urged another suit should have been by her interpreted as her heart would have had it? She set her hands upon his shoulders, and meeting his eager gaze with the frank glance of the maid who, out of trust, is fearless in her surrender. Throughout my life I shall thank God that you have dared it, she made answer softly. A strange reply, he deemed it. Yet pondering, he took her meaning to be that since Jocelyn had lacked the courage to woo boldly, she was glad that he had sent an ambassador less timid. A pause followed, and for a spell they sat silent, he thinking of how to frame his next words, she happy and content to sit beside him without speech. She marveled somewhat at the strangeness of his wooing, which was like unto no wooing her romancer's tales had told her of. But then she reflected how unlike he was to other men, and therein she saw the explanation. I wished, he mused, that matters were easier, that it might be mine to boldly sue your hand from your father, but it may not be. Even had events not fallen out as they have done, it had been difficult, as it is, it is impossible. Again his meaning was obscure, and when he spoke of suing for her hand from her father, he did not think of adding that he would have sued it for his son. I have no father, she replied. This very day have I disowned him. And observing the inquiry with which his eyes were of a sudden charge, would you have me own a thief, a murderer, my father? She demanded with a fierceness of defiant shame. You know, then, he ejaculated. Yes, she answered sorrowfully. I knew all there is to be known. I learnt it but all this morning. All day I have pondered it in my shame, to end it in the resolve to leave Sheringham. I had intended going to London to my mother's sister. You were very opportunely come. She smiled up at him through the tears that were glistening in her eyes. You come even as I was despairing, nay, when already I had despaired. Sir Crispin was no longer puzzled by the readiness of her acquiescence. Here was the explanation of it. Forced by the honesty of her pure soul to abandon the house of a father she knew at last for what he was, the refuse Crispin now offered her was very welcome. She had determined before he came to quit Castle Marleigh, and timely indeed with his offer of the means of escape from a life that was grown impossible. A great pity filled his heart. She was selling herself, he thought, accepting the proposal which on his son's behalf he made, and from that which at any other season he feared she would have shrunk in detestation. That pity was reflected on his countenance now, and noting its solemnity, and misconstruing it, she laughed outright despite herself. He did not ask her why she laughed. He did not notice it. His thoughts were busy already upon another matter. When next he spoke it was to describe to her the hollow of the road where on the night of his departure from the castle he had been flung from his horse. She knew the spot, she told him, and there at dusk upon the following day she would come to him. Her woman must accompany her, and for all that he feared such an addition to the party might retard their flight. Yet he could not gainsay her resolution. Her uncle, he learnt from her, was absent from Sheringham. He had set out four days ago for London. 
For her father she would leave a letter, and in this matter Crispin urged her to observe circumspection, giving no indication of the direction of her journey. In all he said, now that matters were arranged, he was calm, practical, and unloverlike, and for all that she would have been less self-possessed, her faith in him caused her, upon reflection, even to admire this which she conceived to be restraint. Yet when at parting he did no more than courteously bend before her, and kiss her hand, as any simpering gallant might have done, she was all but vexed, and not to be outdone in coldness, she grew frigid. But it was lost upon him. He had not a lover's discernment, quickened by anxious eyes that watched for each flitting change upon his mistress's face. They parted thus, and into the heart of Mistress Cynthia there crept that night a doubt that banished sleep. Was she wise in entrusting herself so utterly to a man of whom she knew but little, and that learned from rumors which had not been good? But scarcely was it because of that that doubts assailed her. Rather was it because of his cool deliberateness which argued not the great love wherewith she fain would fancy him inspired. For consolation she recalled a line that had it great fires were soon burnt out, and she sought to reassure herself that the flame of his love, if not all-consuming, would at least burn bright and steadfastly until the end of life. And so she fell asleep betwixt hope and fear, yet no longer with any hesitancy touching the morrow's course. In the morning she took her woman into her confidence, and scared her with it out of what little sense the creature owned. Yet to such purpose did she talk, that what that evening, as Crispin waited by the coach he had taken, in the hollow of the road, he saw approaching him a portly middle-aged dame with a valise. This was Cynthia's woman, and Cynthia herself was not long in following, muffled in a long black cloak. He greeted her warmly, affectionately almost, yet with none of the rapture to which she held herself entitled, as some little recompense for all that on his behalf she left behind. Urbanly he handed her into the coach, and after her her woman, then seeing that he made shift to close the door. "'How is this?' she cried. "'Do you not ride with us?' He pointed to a saddled horse standing by the roadside, in which she had not noticed. "'It will be better so. You will be at more comfort in the carriage without me.' Moreover, it will travel the lighter and the swifter, and speed will prove our best friend. He closed the door and stepped back with a word of command to the driver. The whip cracked, and Cynthia flung herself back almost in a pet. What manner of lover, she asked herself, was then, and what manner of woman she, to let herself be borne away by one who made so little use of the arts and wiles of sweet persuasion? To carry her off, and yet not so much as sit beside her, was worthy only of a man who described such a journey as tedious. She marveled greatly at it, yet more she marveled at herself that she did not abandon this mad undertaking. The coach moved on, and the flight from Sheringham was begun. End of chapter 24 Recorded by Rick Cornwall